0: I'm not suggesting the Trump administration is right on this. In fact, they're wrong in Iraq, they're wrong in Syria, and they're wrong in Afghanistan, just like Barack Obama was wrong in Iraq, wrong in Syria, and wrong in Afghanistan. It is the week of March 9th, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. Today, we have with us Dana Struhl, former senior staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Andy Kaiser, a fellow at NSI and a former senior advisor to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. First time guest Katrina Mulligan, Managing Director of the National Security and International Policy Program at the Center for American Progress, and myself, Jamil Jaffer, the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute. My first time actually hosting our podcast in place of Lester Munson. This week we'll be discussing the practical and political implications of the peace agreement signed between the United States and Taliban. This agreement comes on the heels of a temporary ceasefire that and may be dissolving as we speak. So First, I guess we should talk a little bit about what the deal itself has in it. Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, last week said the deal is composed of four main parts, guarantees and mechanisms by the Taliban that will ensure Afghanistan will never be used by terrorists to launch attacks against the United States and its allies. Number two, a timeline for withdrawal of U.S. and allied forces that commences in the next two weeks. The start of an intra-Afghan negotiations within 10 days and the pursuit of a permanent and comprehensive ceasefire. So those are the four elements that Secretary Esper laid out. We saw some reporting over the weekend about some alleged secret annexes that some members of Congress have seen. Dana, tell us about what, 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 do you, what should we think about this deal? Will the agreement prove to be binding? How will it look in five years?
1: Thanks, Jamil. So I, it's, it's too soon to tell whether the agreement will be binding or not. What it is, is a, is a promising start. Some of the criticisms of the deal have been the asymmetry of how it was negotiated. So the agreement was negotiated between the United States and the Taliban the big missing actor here is the Afghan government um, and the Afghan people who will ultimately have to live in Afghanistan after U.S. forces withdraw. So whether or not or what this deal looks like, what the deal did is set a path forward for which the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban could then negotiate on the future of their country, presumably with elections um, where the Afghan people will have an opportunity to vote, etc. I would also point out one of the major criticisms of the deal is that the United States, appears to have negotiated for the withdrawal of all of these Taliban, about 5,000 Taliban prisoners, that it's not on the United States to release. It's on the Afghan government. So you've already seen resistance. And this, I would suggest, is a Perhaps flaw of this initial deal in that the United States is negotiating without the main stakeholder at the table, the Afghan government. So it's not on us to make commitments about the release of prisoners that could potentially completely destabilize Afghanistan. And you've already seen hesitation by key leaders in the Afghanistan government.
0: Well, Andy, what about that? This idea that the Trump administration has gone awry by negotiating this deal directly with the state we don't even recognize, the Islamic Emirate, and you know, this idea that there's something wrong going on here because our own government, the people that we put in place and have propped up for the better part of almost two decades, are not even at the table in these negotiations. Isn't that a huge problem and make, makes this deal completely unstable?
2: I think certainly it can be over time. I think if we take a step back, though, we need to put the Afghanistan situation in some context context so the a primary foreign policy objective of the last two administrations, of course, was to get out of uh, Afghanistan, hopefully with uh, some type of victory in hand in and in a stable uh, nation, which was always a bit of a you know a stretch goal, given the government in Kabul didn 't exercise control over the country for uh, millennial, literally so clearly all kinds of in, uh, impediments to to success and trying to balance that relationship between the taliban and the afghan government certainly problematic i will cite the amrullah saleh op-ed in time magazine for our listeners, which I thought was significant. So he was a, a primary um, disciple of uh, Masood who led the Northern Alliance and was killed two days before 9-11 by Al-Qaeda. He is, he's an immensely impressive individual for those of us who've gotten to know him. The Taliban and Al-Qaeda have tried to kill him and his family numerous times. He wrote an op-ed saying, I fought the Taliban my whole life. Now I'm ready to fight them at the ballot box. So for someone like that willing to kind of turn the page and try to bring this conflict into the diplomatic and, and election exchange of ideas and battle of ideas, I thought was, was very significant.
0: Well, Katrina, you served at the National Counterterrorism Center um, in the prior administration. And, you know, look, Secretary Esper says here... You know, it's this deal ensures that Afghanistan will never be a, ta- a base again, uh, even under Taliban control uh, for terrorist attacks against the United States and our allies. Is that right? Is Does this deal have the elements in it that would make that happen and, and make that promise come true?
3: If only it were so easy to know. You know, I, look, I actually think that our counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan have been reasonably successful. And certainly I think we are in a better place today than we were. But do I think that that is a a tenuous, like sort of state of affairs. Yeah. I mean, I think we, I think we very easily could slide backwards. We saw that happen in Iraq. Um, I think it's incredibly important that, um, that whatever, um, deal does end up holding, and I'm not sure this deal will be, will be that. I think it's got to contend with the realities of, of the counterterrorism threat, but, you know, stepping back, you know, up to this kind of 30,000 foot level. I also think that we need to consider the broader strategic context. I mean, obviously, I've worked in the counterterrorism space. I think terrorism issues are incredibly important. They certainly are important to the American people. But the threat posed by terrorism and emanating from Afghanistan right now, it ranks nowhere near some of the threats that we're facing from um, other national security concerns, whether that's climate change or pandemics, Russia, China. So I, I do think that there's a bit of a focus on the car- counterterrorism threat. It's appropriate. It's important that we deal with it. But but I also think it needs to be weighed against the broader strategic context of what the threats are facing the United States writ large. And I think there is a a responsible way to kind of maintain the current state of affairs. I'm not convinced yet that that this deal is going to get us there.
0: Well, interesting, Katrina. You know, it's an, an important point you make about these other national security threats that we face, climate change, pandemic that we're seeing happening right now. But I mean, I do think there's something special about terrorism, right? We've always thought that there was something different about 3,000 plus Americans being killed on a single day by civilian airliners flying into buildings um, and destroying them in the heart of uh, the world's greatest city. So, you know, I, I do, I do take your point that there are bigger other national security threats that might be in play and more people may die every year from car accidents or whatever name your, name your ill. But the reality is that the American people Expect to be protected against terrorism. And, you know, the threat did emanate from Afghanistan 20 years ago, and there may be bigger terrorist threats elsewhere in the world today, but that may be a facet of the fact that we actually – went to Afghanistan and fought this battle for the last 20 years. You know, there is sort of an old saw that says if you're not going to fight the terrorists overseas, they're going to come here and you're going to have to fight them here. And so the question is, is is that what's happening here? Is You know, Andy, is the president walking away uh, from Afghanistan because he, like the prior president, has wanted to get out his entire time in office, and he just just finally decided enough is enough. I'm walking away. The American people are tired. And if that means it heightens the threat environment, and we let the people who who host Osama bin Laden back in, well,
2: so be it. You know, I I think the certainly the the former, the the latter might have some debate, but the siren song of sort of sort of pulling back from the world and in the idea that we could just reach out and touch someone easily to solve our problems is is not a new one, but I, I think is is often ill fated. So take Afghanistan for for example, when we began closing a lot of um, For operating bases in Afghanistan, which you lose is the important element of intelligence collection it 's really hard to know what bad guys to strike where if you have no idea where they are uh, or any ability to uh, engage them as far as their pattern of life activity so those that withdrawal uh, becomes problematic in a lot of ways that are not always uh, initially seen um, i 'd also cite the the idea that you know i think there 's and actually i I, I, w- I had a lot of concern with President Obama and, and folks like Ben Rhodes who would draw this, draw this uh, dichotomy that I thought was a, thought was a very false choice for the American people and the foreign policy establishment. Either you have a hundred thousand a hundred thousand troops in a place or you have no presence. There's nothing in between, and one is bad and one is manageable. I thought that was that was entirely false, and we saw that in Syria, we saw that in Iraq, and I think the same situation in in Afghanistan now, where you could have a small footprint with a significant impact.
0: Well, but of course, isn't isn't the position you just described to Barack Obama and Ben Rhodes exactly Donald Trump's position? I mean, he has signed a deal now with the Taliban without, as Dana points out, the involvement of the Afghan government to take all American troops, well, first down to 8,600, and then all of them out within 14 months. I mean, these are the people who hosted Osama bin Laden. And by the way, Barack Obama freed from Guantanamo Bay as part of the Bo Bergdahl deal, right? These are the same four people that are negotiating this deal, right? I mean, isn't that exactly the problem? Dana, I mean, you know, can you defend this Trump deal?
1: No, I can't, I'm i not going to defend the Trump deal. But what I am going to say is I think where we are in this debate in American society, there are similarities on the Democratic side and the Republican side. And it's exactly in this nuance that Andy points out between having huge force presence in order to pursue counterterrorism objectives, which then you get a Christmas tree effect where there's all these other policy objectives on top of that presence, plus the contractors that support the military presence, plus the distorting effects of the military, plus the contractor presence on Domestic economies, which at times can exacerbate the conflict. We've seen this in Afghanistan, we've seen this in Iraq, et cetera and having nothing. And so you actually see the Trump administration in many ways having pursuing similar policy objectives, which is reducing force presence. And you actually, with this deal, look at what the Democratic primary candidate said. Nobody disagreed with the broader objective of reducing force presence in Afghanistan. The question is how you negotiate that. And at this point, what the Trump administration did is negotiate directly with, I mean, we haven't designated them as a foreign terrorist organization, Both terrorists who harbored Al Qaeda in order to attack us on 9-11 without the Afghan government, which ostensibly has been the objective of our policy to create a stable Afghan government so that extremist elements like the Taliban can no longer host Al Qaeda in order to plot external operations against the United States.
0: Well, so apparently in in an odd turn of events, I'm the only hawk in the room this time. And normally it's a pretty it's a pretty, you know, agreeable audience. But I mean, I just don't believe this. This idea that somehow it's all going to be fine when the Taliban take over. We're going to be free from counterterrorism concerns because they've finally reformed themselves. And
1: No, 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 Jamil. And that's not what, I don't think that's what Andy's saying, and it's certainly not what I'm saying. But there is a lively debate in this country about the most effective means. People are war-weary. They've seen the Iraq experiment. They've seen the Afghanistan experiment. And the question is, for how much longer are we going to keep forces there when the Afghan government is ineffective, corrupt, etc.?
0: Well, you Would think that people would have learned from the Iraq experiment, where when we walked away from Iraq, ISIS showed up, right? And we had to go back into Iraq. So the Iraq experiment is exactly the example of why not to make the same mistake in Afghanistan. But I do want to turn...
1: Okay, except the Trump administration is about to make the same mistake. He's tried to leave Syria, I think, three times now, and he looks totally willing to leave Iraq as well.
0: Agreed. I'm not suggesting the Trump administration is right on this. In fact, they're wrong in Iraq, they're wrong in Syria, and they're wrong in Afghanistan, just like Barack Obama was wrong in Iraq, wrong in and wrong in Afghanistan. Just because they're from different parties doesn't mean they're they're not both wrong. What fundamentally we have here is a problem that, yes, the American people are war-weary, but it's because the American people need to be led. They need to be educated. That The reason we have been safe from terrorism for the last two decades, largely at home, is because we've fought the terrorists over where they live. But Katrina, you're you're the terrorism expert in this room, right? You're the one who's done this for real on the ground. Andy's laid out this idea that maybe with a smaller force presence we could do some of this work right and you've talked about that a little bit what what is what are realistic outcomes that we could achieve in afghanistan if we stayed longer for some period of time and we didn't just withdraw like the president wants to do
3: well look i mean Jamil, far be it for me to be agreeing with you um on on a matter of foreign policy but like and it's about to be something you're not expecting jamil i agree with you that that the policy experts in both administrations i would argue um, both of our previous administrations fail to make the case that there is anything in it for Americans. I mean, the real problem here is that most Americans don't understand what our policy objectives are in Afghanistan at all. They are concerned about terrorism, um, but they are much more concerned when you actually look at polling data with the threat from violent white supremacy here at home than they are from, you know, this distant foreign threat. And, And so, like, to your point, I think the real issue here is that most Americans don't see the nexus between what we're doing in Afghanistan and what impacts their lives. Um, that to, to your point, that can absolutely change. It really takes exactly one act of terrorism to change people's minds on that. But, you know, I think when you look at the what those resources could be doing if we weren't investing them in Afghanistan to strengthen our democracy, to counter violent white supremacy at home, to invest in the American people, I think it's really a tough sell at this point to for Americans to understand that but for, you know, all of these, you know, trillions of dollars that we're investing in Afghanistan, we would all be experiencing some massive threat at home. I'm not sure that's even really true, and I think one of the lessons from Iraq, for better or worse, is that after ISIS did reemerge, we kind of got it back in the box. And so there's a sense, I think from most Americans that The same thing, you know, maybe maybe the counterterrorism situation um, really tanks in Afghanistan after we draw down. But, you know, it's nothing we can't turn around in six months or a year, you know, in the future. And I'm not saying that's the right answer, but I am saying that that's the conversation happening in most Americans um, households around the kitchen table.
0: Well, you know, you're, I think you're exactly right, Katrina. What's actually interesting about the point you made is that the American people don't have a sense of why we're there. But it turns out that even people in the U.S. government, for the better part of a decade or even longer, have questioned whether our whether our effort in Afghanistan was successful. You know, Dana, we, we heard the Washington Post had a recent report on the Afghanistan papers these these records of of what the government sort of almost in some ways. The, like the Pentagon Papers about the Vietnam War, what our own internal analysis of what was happening in Afghanistan was and how effective we were, what does that tell us about what the future for Afghanistan holds and whether there's some real opportunity here, whether the American people might just be right? Maybe we just need to get out and let it go. And maybe the Soviets were right when they left in the 80s.
1: So I think what is really important to recognize about the Afghanistan papers is, is that there was not just a confusion about how to measure what success was or what winning was or whether we were meeting our objectives inside Afghanistan, but given the confusing or deliberate misinterpretation of the data or the, the fact patterns in Afghanistan, there was also deliberate attempts to put certain facades on it to sell it both to Congress and its oversight capabilities and to the American people. So regardless of the data, there was a nice face being put on what was happening. So now we are in a post Afghanistan papers moment. And I think people are even more cynical than they were before about what we're accomplishing in Afghanistan. So do you need this huge force presence to both fight the Taliban, do do counterterrorism, but also help the Afghan government. So when we're drawing down our diplomatic mission, when we're reducing our U.S. Agency for International Development Assistance Funds, etc., what are we really doing to accomplish that objective of a stable, self-reliant Afghan government? And you could easily extend this to Iraq and Syria. You have a White House saying, we're defeating ISIS, no problem here. And the reality on the ground is different.
0: Well, not only is it different, but the people that defeated ISIS for us are the same people we threw under the bus when it came to the Turks, the Kurds. And so, well, let me ask you this, Andy. When it comes to this whole, you know, Afghanistan debate, one of the issues that came up during the Afghanistan papers was that not enough information was getting out to the American public and to our elected representatives in Congress about what was really going on on the ground in Afghanistan. And now, just over this weekend, we've gotten a report saying that there were classified annexes to this to this uh, agreement, two classified annexes that apparently lay out the details um, of exactly when and how the U.S. is withdraw, when we would share information with the Taliban, of all people, on U.S. troop positions. Tell us about these secret annexes, and is the, is the administration giving us enough information, giving the American people and its elected representatives and Congress enough information to make a rational judgment about this? Or is this just like the Iran nuclear deal, where President Obama tried to stonewall the American people and the Congress on the question on, on an international agreement?
2: So I, th- I think there's a, a number of, of key differences. First of all, the two annexes have been referred to as military implementation documents, uh, which, though classified, are available to, to the Congress in, in secure uh, settings. Key difference to the Iran nuclear deal. As far as um, how this might work going forward, I mean, listen, we're, we're cutting, working to cut a deal with you know one of our foremost enemies over the last 20 years. It's, it's certainly not going to be pleasant. Not all that much unlike dealing with Kim jong un in North Korea or others, which I think Jamil, if you and I had our way, perhaps uh, the the strategy and policies might might look significantly different i would I, I will make one point, my thinking on this has evolved over the recent years in this way, and that is I do think having the support of 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 the public of the of the country who 's involved in the military engagement is more important than I understood or knew twenty years ago, and I think that 's that's the failure katrina hit on and it didn't happen two months ago or six months ago or 10 years ago but it was a sustained failure over the last 20 years can any of us sitting at this table think of the last major foreign policy speech by a national leader who laid out the u.s objectives in afghanistan in a thoughtful coherent way i can't one that actually people paid attention to. So I think when the American people, all the only news they see out of Afghanistan is an occasional body bag showing up at Dover Air Force Base and that's what they see, it's really hard for folks who support that mission to, you know, continually argue against certainly the easy policy position, which is, it's just not worth it, let's come home. But at the same time, you have to, I do think we have to realize the folks we're sending, the military, intelligence, and diplomatic professionals we're sending over there, folks like uh, Jamil, myself, and Dana, who want to see a positive outcome. We're starving them of the resources. Katrina too. Katrina too. I'm sorry. Starving them of of the resources uh, and policy support that they need to be successful. And we're wondering why we're at the stalemate. So I think we're we're kidding ourselves when we say that they can succeed based on the parameters and the the uh, the support that uh, that we're sending them. And you look at the public polling, and you look at what the national debate is. All the Democratic candidates and the President of the United States all have a certain view you <laughs> Uh, I think that leads to the outcome that we're we're working towards um, in Afghanistan today.
1: So this is Dana. Those of you that are regular listeners to this podcast knows that Jamil likes to slip in spicy nuggets once in a while, and I feel compelled to respond here. So, he talked about um, the uh, Obama era Iran nuclear agreement and um, stonewalling of Congress. So I'm going to read one paragraph from an op-ed published last Friday by Tom Malinowski, a Democratic member of Congress who represents represents New Jersey's 7th Congressional District. He said, in principle, there is nothing wrong with the United States negotiating directly with the Taliban. Remember, this is a Democrat who actually served in the Barack Obama administration in a human rights policy position. He says, I go on, a limited deal committing all sides to reducing violence as the United States withdrew some troops and the Taliban started talks with the Afghan government would have been a good thing. It would have tested the Taliban's intentions before committing to a full U.S. withdrawal and preserved negotiating leverage for the United States' Afghan allies. Based on the Trump administration's briefings, that is what many of us in Congress believed was in the works. He goes on to talk about a private briefing he and other members of Congress had with Secretary of State Pompeo at the Munich Security Dialogue, where they were told exactly this, and what the contents of the deal is once made public were patently different. So we are talking about members of Congress who believe they were lied to. The Barack Obama administration did not lie to Congress. In fact, they bent over backwards in briefings and hearings to provide information. Now... The reason that Congress was able to organize to exercise the stringent oversight over the Iran nuclear agreement culminating in the Iran nuclear agreement review act, which Jamil was part of authoring and getting through legislation and getting passed is because people understood the contents of the agreement, had an opportunity to review the agreement before it went into effect, and knew that they opposed the agreement. This is different. This is members of the administration lying to members of Congress, deliberately denying their oversight rights, and constantly breaking the law when it comes to Congress's constitutional responsibilities of oversight and power of the so this. This is So you can make parallels about secret annexes, you can make snarky comments about the Iran nuclear agreement, but the process is totally different.
0: Well, so I, I just can't believe that this is actually the story you're telling about the Iran nuclear deal, and I don't want to turn this podcast into an Iran nuclear deal debate, but let's— We're definitely
1: let's, not going to subject our, our loyal listeners to that. Let's,
0: let's call it what it is, though. The president was going to refuse to show anybody in the U.S. government that deal that was not in the administration if we had not passed the Iran nuclear agreement review. He said, "You'll get a chance to review the deal when you have to vote on it." Way back twenty years how many from now, on-
1: briefings and hearings happened before? Before?
0: that. Briefings where they didn't tell us anything. They didn't that give us any context not of the deal. True. Well, okay. We'll, we'll agree to disagree on that one. The whole reason the Congress passed the Iran Nuclear Review Act, forcing the President to submit the deal to Congress, was because he made it clear he was not going to submit the deal to Congress, was not going to show it to anybody. It was going to be an unsigned piece of paper that only he and a handful of people saw. Anyway. So wait,
1: I want to add one more thing here to the fault line. So the interesting, the interesting aspect of this and how it applies to the current moment we're in is that there was actually bipartisan convergence that Congress should get to review the Iran nuclear agreement given the tremendous stakes and equities of Congress having passed so many pieces of sanctions legislation and so Congress wanted a say and they came together to ensure that they had a say before the agreement went into effect what is really surprising here is for the most part either lukewarm milk toast or absent statements about this deal despite the fact of its asymmetry and the fact that the Taliban actually planned and harbored al-Qaeda in order to have 9-11 happen in the United States. And we do not have any semblance of bipartisan holding hands for any piece of legislation or oversight as to what happens with this deal's implementation. And that I think is a shocking indictment of both where Congress is and the silence of the GOP right
0: now. Totally agree that it is it is ridiculous that nobody's calling for that. Only a handful of members of Congress, like Liz Cheney, are calling for the deal to be made public, for the American people to have access to it, for members of Congress to have access to it, and frankly, for Congress to conduct some oversight. I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more on that front, Dana. Katrina, what do you think? Are you, where, where do you end up on this deal? Is it going to survive? Are we going to make it through to the end of this? Does the U.S. successfully withdraw from Afghanistan in the next few years? Next 14 months, as it turns out.
3: I'm not in the business of betting on this administration to be successful. So I'm not going to put my thumb on that scale. But here's what I what I will tell you overall is that that we are at a point in the national conversation where we have really moved beyond Afghanistan and wither Afghanistan. And I think we have a different set of threats that the American people want to see the government respond to.
0: Well, look, I think that's a great note to end on. So why don't we go to our final question? Round of topics where we, everyone t- everyone talks about the hot topic they're tracking that we didn't talk about today. So
2: we'll start with Andy. So, um, an interesting, disturbing uh, reminder this week of the risk of being a critic of Vladimir Putin. Just this week, a, a Kremlin critic of the amoral, uh, horrific regime in Chechnya was found stabbed 135 times in France. This, of course, is on top of the literally dozens of mysterious poisonings and um, suicides and and accidents that have befallen critics of the kremlin uh in recent years one more reminder uh these these little blips show up when uh there's uh, you know somebody has some interesting sushi in london uh but then we kind of lose track of just how thuggish uh this mafia regime is in in moscow and uh disturbing reminder this week right thanks andy Trina.
3: So I am increasingly concerned about the direction that the intelligence community is heading in at this kind of moment where we're all kind of focused on different things. I mean, having watched the nation sort of respond to. Um the disclosures, the unauthorized disclosures of intelligence information by NSA contractor Edward Snowden. you know, I thought that we were as a country headed in a direction where we wanted our intelligence community to focus more narrowly on those areas where secrets really matter and and I thought that the that the national conversation um, had kind of given the IC a steer that that mass uh, surveillance programs were um, for lack of a better metaphor, juice that wasn't really worth the squeeze. And what I'm seeing now is sort of a, a trajectory for the intelligence community that that far from um, constraining itself in light of those disclosures is actually moving kind of squarely in the direction of emerging technologies, AI, machine learning, advanced analytics. And as I watch that, I have a lot of questions about whether or not the American people uh, really think that that's what they want their intelligence community to be doing. I think. I think we need to have a national conversation about the value proposition of the intelligence community in today's information environment. And I think that the result of that conversation ought to be a narrowing rather than an expanding of those kind of programs.
0: Got it. Thanks, Katrina. So with Andy, we've got a dead Chechens. Katrina's increasingly concerned about the about a, a growing effort in the intelligence community. Um, I'm looking at, at oil. And the huge drop in price uh, in oil over the last few days as the Russians refused to uh, adhere to OPEC-suggested production cuts. Uh, As a result, Saudi Arabia dramatically increased its production of oil and cut its benchmark price of oil today uh, it looks like uh benchmark crude is already down almost uh, 50% year to date as of midday trading today used to be for the US that was a great day for the consumers great day for the American for Americans generally but of course having become a net exporter of oil the United States actually is increasingly affected by the reducing uh, price of 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 oil in the international market so it's going it could be a tough day for, for the United States. Obviously, in some ways, uh, a, a benefit to net consumers because, uh, we're, as we're, as we're entering this, uh, potential downturn, economic downturn, uh, with the coronavirus, uh, that may be a benefit. At the same time, oil producers in some of these oil producing states like North Dakota, Oklahoma, and the like, uh, where we have, uh, fracking going on, maybe, and shale oil coming from there, may a real challenge. So that's, that's one thing I'm tracking closely. Dana, over to you for the last thing we're tracking.
1: So I am tracking Idlib Syria, where for the first time in the nine years of the Syrian civil war, we actually had state-on-state direct kinetic action when Russia bombed from the sky a U.S.-NATO ally, Turkey, and took out 33 Turkish soldiers. And Turkey responded by decimating the Assad regime forces, pushing uh, civilians up against the Turkish border. What is interesting to me about this is two things. Set aside the Horrible humanitarian catastrophe, which is the worst of the nine-year civil war. But two other things that play into our domestic debate here: one, the U.S. long debated the threat or use of military force in Syria against something other than against ISIS. Congress never authorized that. The Barack Obama administration was hesitant to do it under Article Two authorities. And here you actually have Turkey. Responding to threats against its border by, by taking out Assad material and personnel and Russia responding. So that's number one. And number two is, despite all of this, the best the U.S. policy could come up with coming from the State Department was calling for a ceasefire, which in no way mitigates the humanitarian catastrophe, deals with a dog's breakfast of Al-Qaeda affiliates in Idlib, or addresses the underlying causes of the Syria conflict. So Erdogan rushes to Moscow. Again, most people in the Middle East now believe the path of peace runs through Moscow, not Washington, negotiates a ceasefire that is totally not in the interest of President Erdogan of Turkey. So in the context of great power competition, which is another reason why the administration wants to get our forces out of Afghanistan and redirect great power competition against Russia and China, Russia negotiates a ceasefire that Turkey feels compelled to agree with that does nothing to pro- to protect uh, Turkey's interests.
0: Great. Thank you, Dana. And thanks all of our, to our listeners for joining us. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi@gmu.edu. If you like what we're doing, be sure to rate and review us and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Switch and Board in DC for hosting and engineering our episode for today. Claude Jennings for editing, Cole Frank and John Wilson for research, and Grant Haver for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.